0: life. Well hello everybody and welcome to this the third Practico, not so much a webinar, more a chat between the problem created by Covid and the breakfast meeting has been replaced by this sort of webinar. Um, I should say before I go any further that if you have any uh, questions or comments to make on the content of this uh, programme, if I can call it that, um, you will be able to do that when it's uploaded onto YouTube. The participants today, the friends, are myself, Jeremy Morgan, a former cost barrister and consultant to Practico now, Andy Ellis, the managing director of Practico. And our guest today is Nicholas Bacon in QC, who needs no introduction. Uh, it's always said by someone who opens a meeting saying, so-and-so needs no introduction, that they follow that up with a long CV. I'm not gonna do that. Nick needs no introduction, he's not getting one. I'm just gonna talk though very briefly about the sort of topics we're hoping to cover in the course of this chat. Um, We're gonna start off with a case which is going to the Supreme Court shortly on costs, which in itself is a matter of interest. Um, We're also going to talk about a case which has a follow-on from a case which recently went to the Supreme Court, a case called Gavin Edmondson, about the solicitor's so-called equitable lien. Um, An interesting case, the new one, because it involves a firm that specializes in bringing actions against airline companies, and particularly Ryanair. And this case is indeed a case against Ryanair. Um, the, The company set up this special program. It's highly automated to make uh, claims for, uh, it's mainly delay in, uh, under EU regulations in relation to airlines. And uh, that's their their speciality, that's their business model. Another firm with a business model, which might be regarded as highly specialist, is checkmylegalfees.com, who have brought a case against a firm of solicitors. The case is called Belsner and CAM Legal Services, and that relates to the question of informed consent by a solicitor, uh, by a client, sorry, to a solicitor's bill or parts of it. And in this context, it is about uh, low value person injury litigation. Um, those two matters really bring fit for purpose, or is the uh, 19th century model of on which it's paced uh, still good today. A number of people have expressed views about that and we'd like to hear what Nick has to say. And finally, we might sh- uh, leave uh, the discussion with a touch of glamour and talk about Johnny Depp. Um, so,
1: over now. I think that was an introduction for me, was it Jeremy? You just just cut out then on that last um, bit there, I ah. couldn't hear you. But- it yes, yes it, was, it
0: was for you. I'm sorry that it cut out. Yeah, yeah, we, right, much better,
1: much better that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It shows it's live and completely unprepared. <laughs> uh, well, well, I suppose it could be good morning, good evening, good night, good lunchtime, whatever it is when people are watching good this luck. Um, <laughs> webinar, video, meeting, whatever one likes to call it. But um, um, a hello to all of you. And thanks for joining in yeah i mean i was going to start with a couple of um cases which i think will be of interest as jeremy said the the first one um the bells there um appeal which i think will be relevant to a lot of practitioners out there we're waiting on judgment <coughs> it's an appeal that has been heard by the high court uh, and um there are a number of issues in the case but the, print, the main issue. Um, concerns an application of section 74 3 of the Slicers Act Um, some of you out there will know exactly what that is some won't Um, that provision essentially in summary provides that um, certainly in in, um, uh, contentious proceedings um, the amount that may be allowed on assessment between the parties um, in the county court, um, cannot exceed um, the amount that um, uh, the court allows in terms of inter parties costs um, when billing the client. So, you have to get the client's consent to charge more than what the county court might allow in order to charge the client the sum we want to charge. So, put it a simple analysis: there are fixed costs. Uh, in the county court, the fixed costs in the high court, but the fixed costs in the county court. And what's happened here is the um, court has, uh, the claim claim is settled, the fixed costs are effectively payable, Uh, the solicitors render a bill to the client for the work they've done in successfully pursuing the claim, the personal injury claim. (coughs) And the challenge by the client is essentially... Um, because you didn't tell me that the costs um, could exceed the fixed costs that are allowed between the parties in the county court, I'm not liable to pay you any more than those fixed costs. Um, and um, that's really the, 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 the issue. And <clears throat> what, what is being argued in the, in the appeal is essentially what does a solicitor have to tell the client? Um, in order to overcome the effect of section 74.3, namely that they would be fixed and couldn't charge the client more than what is recoverable from the other side. Um, on the facts of the particular case, the client was told about the existence of fixed costs in the proceedings in which they were concerned, um, but they weren't told the amount. Of the fixed costs, and of course, um, in the world of personal injury and the portal, and in cases that fall outside the portal but are never left subject to fixed costs, the fixed costs vary from piddly little sums to actually quite substantial sums, depending upon where the case settles. And so, the solicitors took the view that um, you know it's an, it's an impossibility to identify right at the outset what the fixed costs in the case will be. And it's enough to tell the client, look, um, you're liable to pay our fees based on an hourly rate in terms of the conditional fee agreement, but there are fixed costs and therefore the recoveries that you make may be limited, but we have the right to charge you more than those fixed costs. Um, Which is effectively what the solicitors have done. The client's case is that the the solicitor needs to go further. They say that uh, consent or an agreement under Section 74 um, of the Solicitors Act, Section 74.3, and the linked CPR rule of 46.92, which I'll come to in a minute, requires informed consent. So that um, the you know it's one thing for the client to agree something, but it's another for the client to agree something on the understanding of what it all means. And they're essentially saying that, um, that uh, sorry, my phone's designed to go off. They're essentially, the client's essentially saying that um, in order for the client to give informed consent, the client needs to know what the level of fixed costs are or the level of a couple of costs are in order to say, yeah, I'm happy with that. I'm happy for you to bill me, you know, £4,000, even though I won't only recover £2,000. Now, um, I mentioned mentioned the rules because 46.92 dovetails with Section 74. uh, Rule 46.9 deals with the presumptions that are applicable to a Solicitor Act assessment. And costs are presumed to be reasonable if the client has expressly or cliently approved them. There to be assumed to be unreasonable if, if they haven't. And again, therefore, it is said by the solicitors, well, they've approved um, the charging of costs in excess of the fixed costs because of what they've agreed in the conditional fee agreement. Um, namely, we will pay you an hourly rate um, for the work you've done. And the client is saying, well, no, no, again, it requires informed consent. I need to know. At the time I signed the CFA, confirming my willingness to agree your rates, that in fact your um, hourly rates multiplied by the likely time we're going to spend on the case are a lot more than the uh, fixed costs that are recoverable from the other side. So that, that's what it's about. It, it's actually a, a really important case. Um, the judgment's still reserved. Like we had the hearing uh, it was early part of the lockdown, and. Um, the, the, um, the, you know, we're still waiting for the, for the judgment. Um, 46.92 states, I'm going to read it out. Um, if I could share it on the screen, I would, but that requires a bit more technicality in my end Section 74.3 of the Solicitor's Act applies unless the solicitor and the client have entered into a written agreement which expressly permits payment to the solicitor of an amount of cost greater than that which the client could have recovered from another party to the proceedings and uh as i say the question is what is required by that written agreement um and it goes back jeremy does it not you might remember you and i did battle back in the days um in the boot and case uh i was led by Sir brian leveson um just about to 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 uh start and his new career on the High Court bench. And the the issue in that case was all about informed consent, whether the client had agreed um, the hourly rates that have been set out in the uh, retainer, um, where in circumstances where the hourly rates were actually quite high compared, or very high compared to the inter-parties recover rates. And on appeal, you won. I think you were led by um, Mr. Turner. Um, I won at first instance, you won on appeal. Sure. Right? Judge a, said, more than case. Yeah, judge said, um, the, you, you know, when you agree early rates, you should, you should you, informed consent requires you to tell the client what you might recover. Uh, on I've, this I've case. forgotten
0: the, the line up there. I thought it was the one case in our professional lives when we were on the same side, but that was actually another one for the solicitor who was your client in that particular case. Correct. That came on later. Yeah, yeah that's right.
1: Uh, was so I was in think- front of Master Pollard uh, at first instance, delightful, lovely chap. Hmm. Uh, he found that the client had agreed to the alley rates, and um, there was a trial of factual finding and that effect, and then you may actually get it all set aside on the basis he wasn't informed consent.
2: Not for the first time. I think it was me who lost at first instance, and Jeremy had to fly in and rescue us in the Hi, right, cool. We could we could I can now reveal all these years on because it's about ni- nineteen ninety two or something. That was it then, yeah. It was early yeah, days. That, that, that we didn't go into the appeal with a fantastic amount of confidence. I remember Jeremy phoning up with one of those calls. So we've only won. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember you were in
1: it, actually, Andy. That was in the days of uh, before practico.
2: Oh yeah, uh, exactly. That was Ellis Grant days. But very. I was. Grant, very, yeah. uh, I, I was um, yeah, I still, I still had the scars of that, you know, um, but, <laughs> but it, it, all, it all turned out very well in the end and it was, uh, it, it was, uh, it, it was complicated factually, I remember, by the fact that um, Mr. and Mrs. McDougall um, weren't, weren't actually fantastically frank in aspects of their evidence, I think, because, you know, they were absolutely sort of terrified, but, you know, we were able to sort of cut through to the nub of the principle and it's uh you know it's interesting that it's still very much live today and with the much more sort of consumerist approach that's grown towards you know solicitors act assessments so i'm not surprised that it's still a, a hot topic you know almost 30 years on you know
1: yeah i mean it, it, i agree i mean in one sense it's it's surprising that we're still arguing about this stuff because it is such a lot it's been around you know it's been as you say you know 30 odd years but when you now look at how litigious this whole arena is um you know it's it is less surprising and yeah um
0: the other question which your um account of the the facts gave rise to me was um too much information can be no information can't it i mean how do you explain exactly how much is going to be recovered given as you say the variety of possible recoveries um in a situation like this in a way the client the information but doesn't just make them think i'm not going to bother with this um it, it really is a, a difficult issue and i think it, 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 it's one which uh, affects regulators everywhere and the, the tendency is always to say oh well you've got to give all the information and in fact i very often that has exactly the opposite effect of what is intended
1: yeah well i agree i agree with that i mean th- it is a balance i mean these conditional fee agreements to you and i you know make a lot of sense because we we sort of live and breathe them but You put yourself in the shoes of a you know an individual who's never been to a a lawyer before doesn't know anything about the court process nothing no experience of rules regulations or solicitors they're actually quite complicated documents Mm. and you know the more you overload these things on the on the grounds that you think you need to do so in order to uh, you know give so-called client consumer protection actually as you say it it runs the risk of having an adverse consequence, thing that it will become so complicated um, that it that, that it doesn't, doesn't actually achieve what you hope the additional inflation will will achieve. Um, and, I, and certainly, on 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 in my case, the solicitors have taken that view that they've they've given the clients, you know, they've expressly referred to the ability to recover costs that they are fixed by the rules. That you can go to the rules and read them if you want to read them. They're there. But of course, very few clients would. But the idea of having to set out right at the outset what what the what the fixed cost would be would be actually an impossibility. That's what I said to the judge. Um, you simply don't know when the case is going to settle. You don't know what it's mm-hmm. going to settle for. Mm-hmm. So you can't actually calculate the fixed costs. And so yeah, it'd be, it's going to be interesting. We've been looking at some law on on on. Um, Informed consent in other areas, for example, in in um, commission cases uh, where the courts have held it appears that informed consent to a commission doesn't actually require the recipient of the commission to tell the uh, payer of the commission what the amount of commission will be, just the fact there will be a commission um, is enough for the agreement to have informed consent to the payment of a commission. It's quite interesting. So, you yeah, know, there, there are we've been looking at some other areas of law to try and assist the court in respect of um, these questions. But as I say, we, we're away judgment. It's a, I mean, whatever happens on the facts of the case, um, every solicitor who's doing work in, in, in fixed-cost cases uh, needs to pay attention to this case. No question about that. Um,
2: and and um, is that, how much of it is, how much of any of this is... Um, confined to county court work uh, compared to the wider principles of informed consent that can apply um, to to all contentious retainers?
1: Well it's a good question I mean section 74 specifically um, refers applies to the county court It says so in that section it applies to the remuneration of a solicitor in respect of contentious business done by him in the county court Um, and that Section 74.1 and then three says the amount by which which may be allowed on the accessibility costs of irrespective of related machines in the county court shall not, except in so far as rules of court may provide otherwise exceed the amount. But you can see the argument that you know under the under the general 46.9 provisions as to consent approval, that it would be a bit odd if you had one rule for the county court but not the other. But the, the Act certainly confines itself to the County Court. And one of the things I think was on the agenda, I noticed when drink my coffee, was the current utility of the Solicitor Act. But um, um, I, I, I absolutely can see people arguing this in the, in, in the High Court, in a multi-track case, um, yeah. where fixed costs might apply. There won't be that many, but there will certainly be some.
2: Or even budgeted costs. Court, even budgeted, okay. costs, I would think. Even referring to budgeted costs as well.
1: Quite possibly, yeah. Quite possibly. The other thing, and we,
0: we obviously don't know the result of the case, but if the um, if the client were to lose, it looks to me from uh, reading their website, as they check mylegalfees.com dot com, quite an aggressive organisation. I say that without um, in any way seeking to denigrate them, but they they might well want to take it further.
1: I think both sides have made their uh, position clear that this is likely to end up in the Court of Appeal, which it, and it probably should. Um, most of these sorts of cases do, um, and it is of such importance. I mean, for example, I've been relying on the in the case on the Law Society Standard Model. You know, we, we say that's uh, a carefully drafted CFA model agreement. And we know the absence of any reference to the level of the fixed cost that might recover. certainly it refers to um you know your cost may be limited by the cost you can recover but you agree to pay us anyway we say that's what that that provision is seeking to deal with section 74 3 and um insofar as the law society model agreement is insufficient in accommodating this point then there are going to be thousands of cases hundreds of thousands of cases potentially where um, there may be a problem um, because you don't often see a separate written agreement dealing with the recovery of costs outside of the CFA and the CFA
2: mm.
1: you know, it tends to contain all the terms sometimes you get a letter that says you know, here's the CFA this is what it means and they might then in that letter say something but nine times out of ten the terms of remuneration are fixed by the terms of the CFA and uh, as I say the law society model agreement doesn't doesn't go so far as what the clients in this particular case are alleging. The lawyers should have should have gone.
0: Well, what was the next um, case you wanted to talk about, Nick?
1: <laughs> the next one was the um, well. There are there are there are two. There's the airline one, and there's the the Cox case. Um, I don't know which, whether you whether you got any preference on
0: those. But well, I love the... the airline one just because it's got two. Um, it's tropical, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it? It's tropical. Um, We're in lockdown um, and we can't
1: go flying around the world. Well, we can, but we take a risk. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a dispute between one of the leading specialist firms who, as you said at the outset, um, specialise in the recovery of damages for um, passengers of airlines. So most of them holiday makers, who've had their, delay, their flights delayed or disrupted in some way. They've got very uh, they've made huge investments into the business. They've got very sophisticated systems that enable them to uh, pursue claims right through from the pre-action stage to the to a trial. And they've been in. I think they've ended up in the Supreme Court, certainly in the Court of Appeal, um, on more than one occasion. in The Court of Appeal on the wording and the meaning of various European regulations and so on on, on the damages side of things. What happened is that. Um, they're successful in the vast majority of their claims and so Ryanair pays out um, the the compensation to the clients at the end of the case in most of the cases and um, historically the money the damages payment has been paid to the solicitors direct and the solicitors then utilize that uh, Receipt to discharge their own entitlement To be paid their fees there's a, usually, there's a conditional fee agreement And under the terms of that conditional fee agreement The solicitors can take a deduction from the damages um, Calculated by reference to hourly rates and things To pay for their fees But Ryanair <coughs> um, Stopped that practice And paid the damages direct to the clients Which was obviously a problem Because it meant that the solicitors Having been successful in the claim then had to pursue their own clients for payment which was unedifying, um, not something they wanted to do, and was seen by, by the solicitors as a deliberate attempt by Ryanair to effectively squeeze the solicitors out of being paid. Um, so the solicitors challenged this practice at various levels in terms of legal challenge, uh, various legal arguments. And one of the central arguments is that um Ryanair were all along on notice that the solicitors had um, an equitable lien, uh, an entitlement to a proprietary right-in, the recoveries, and that having had notice of that, they were acting effectively legally in paying the money, the damages to the third party to the clients, um, and disrespecting the entitlement that. So, this list has had to uh, the, those same sums. And so, the question for the court has been is there uh, an equitable right that sits on these recoveries as a matter of law? Uh, equitable charge, um, lien, has been expressed in various different ways, but broadly speaking, a legal entitlement in equity to be. Uh, entitled to deduct their fees from the damages. (coughs) And the solicitors have lost at uh, first instance, and they lost on appeal. On appeal, they lost for slightly different reasons. Um, But the Supreme Court has given permission to appeal. Um, the, The Court of Appeal held that these solicitors didn't have an extra lien on the damages because the work they were doing in essence, as a summary of the thing, because it's actually quite complicated, but the sum- in summary, the Court of Bill said the work that the solicitors were doing uh, on this particular case, and therefore the vast majority of them, was not litigation services. Um, the claim settled, and most of them settled, not all, but a lot of them settled after delivery of a letter before action where the various elements of the claim are set out, the legal uh claim is particularised and then it's investigated by Ryanair and if they if they agree to it they just pay the money and so Ryanair's case which was accepted in the Court of Appeal was that those services were not litigation services and that was relevant because um, if they were not litigation services the Court of Appeal said the solicitors were not doing litigation work to which a lien would otherwise apply. Um, In other words, the Court of Bill saying that solicitors can do lots of different types of work, but if they choose to do work which isn't litigation services, they don't get the benefit of the lien. The lien was established, um, when I use the word lien, I'm summarising the equitable principles of the charge on the property. The right to this lien was established by the Supreme Court in Gavin Edmondson. Which was a road traffic accident case, uh, <coughs> and um, the Supreme Court upheld the solicitors' the unique position that solicitors are in that they have this equitable right over the property that they recover through their instrumentality. Um, now, the, the Court of Appeal in this particular case, in the Ryanair case, uh, has, has distinguished um, government Edmonds on the basis that the work that was being done in the Rana case was effectively writing a letter, letter for action and they've held that that is not a litigation service. Now, we've got permission to appeal on that to the Supreme Court and I strongly believe that the Court of Appeal was wrong. Um, in fact, I'd be interested, I know this is a di- this sort of discussion and we're, you know, we're speaking openly about things, but um, I'd be interested in what your views about it. I mean, I, I, don't, I just don't see for one moment how writing a letter before action is anything other than litigation services. Um, It's a recoverable cost as litigation services when you win. Uh, You're required to to write these letters as part of the protocols. Um, They can range from quite simple documents to very, very complicated documents. Um, If you think about some of the large, you know, construction disputes or big commercial claims, letter for actions can be pages and pages. Um, so I think there's a fundamental area in the approach that the Court of Appeal took. Not least, it's not clear at all, and in fact we'd say the opposite, that Gavin Edmondson even allowed this exception. Um, this, certainly the Supreme Court didn't say that the lien only attaches to a work which is of a litigious nature, litigation services, as defined by Section 58, or as used by Section 58 of the Court of the Services Act, and so um, you know we've got that item to run but even putting that aside even if it did we say that litigation services fundamentally must include drafting of a letter for action mm. so There Sorry, was I no mean,
0: it, principle isn't it going back to uh, the Victoria days um, uh, there was a between contentious and non-contentious work and it, it only applied in contentious work um, I wonder if if the nature of the um, suburb of this particular company that pursues these claims didn't have something to do with it um reading the account in the court of appeal a lot of it is highly highly um automated and um you, they can get somewhere down the line through the client just filling in forms on the in their um, internet site before a, a human being has a lot to do with it and i wonder if the the court just didn't think this is you know this is a step too far um i'm i'm As I think you the questions say, the yeah. matters can be very simple, uh, or they can be quite a complicated letter. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's the prejudice right. came from that.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's right. I think there is a sense of prejudice on the part of the court appeal that they looked on this work as being sort of, you know, not solicitors' work, and you know, more of a claims management type work, and that they shouldn't therefore get the benefit of it. But um, we obviously say it's a really very unfair mischaracterization of the work they do. And it, ha- and it ignores, of course, the work they've done historically in putting in place the procedures and, and mechanisms and so on that um, enable them to, to you know, get through these cases efficiently. Um, and I, I also think, I, it just seems to me that it's, it would be a bit odd for the law to require the court to investigate the nature of the work, at a fairly granular level in order to determine whether or not there's a lien or not, you know, it must be a lot simpler. hand, mm-hmm. um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if you're looking
0: at prejudices, you know, um, who's, who's really a great friend of Ryanair? So, interesting one in terms of the outcome. <laughs> who do you dislike more, even if you take that view mm-hmm. of people yeah. who do claims like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, the portal work, if you compare it to Gavin Edmondson, I mean, obviously, the, a purse injury claim that gets issued under the portal, there, there it was held that there is a lien on recovery. It's really right at the early stages, and there it's all largely automated. You know, you fill in a form; it doesn't require, you know, QCs and highly paid partners of specialist firms. But it's litigious work, and it attract the the, the, the value of the work attracted the, the the lien on the on the on the recoveries. I, and I just, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a very unfair outcome. And I, th- I do think it's unprincipled. Um, and as I say, we've got permission to appeal. So that's important. Um, sure. um, and I hope that this will be reversed. Uh, I feel quite strongly about that, actually.
2: The, um, I mean, I, I, I must confess, right from the outset, from when I was first um, working in COS, um, I mean, I understood the distinction between contentious and non-contentious work in this situation but i never understood why and i still don't understand why you know if something is done in contemplation of litigation or if litigation is going to arise if the if the pre-action work doesn't d- doesn't settle the matter i don't understand jeremy was looks looks very wise he's going to tell me why all this came about but but uh, it, it seems to me to be a bit daft particularly as it can be reverse engineered to become retrospective yeah. Contentious work Once proceedings are issued, Uh, so that seems to me to be a bit dumb. Well, I agree Uh, with you. I made the I made the point somewhere in in the paperwork that,
1: um, I mean, do you remember Jeremy? Another case going back to good old times against each other. We we did that Kipax case. Remember that? I think you read that Kipax. It was a big, long-running administration of an estate. I think um, was it Master who was the assessor again um, <laughs> possibly or master Wright. it was one of one of the one of the um, former masters of the Supreme Court um, uh, and it was a long-running very complicated um, multi-million pounds administration of the state all of it non-contentious business right solicit Act assessments in the course of the in the course of the administration state recoveries were made properties were sold trusts t- tax issues were resolved with 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 inland revenue conceding or, or customers excise conceding repayments and so on Now, although all those recoveries seems to me we're arguing this case a little, they would also be the subject of a lien the solicitor has undertaken work it's made recoveries through its exertions. Um, It's difficult to see why they shouldn't be placed in exactly the same position as a solicitor undertaking litigation services. Mm. And that's why, that's partly why, we say this this requirement for litigation services doesn't make sense because the services that were being provided by the solicitors in the non-contentious arena were not litigation services. There were never any proceedings issued um and they were non-contentious so I, like I suppose it, in
0: in policy yeah. terms it's an area where um solicitors have had special treatment some of which has been favorable and not all of it um but if you then extend the principle to non-contentious business then you're gonna get house of protest from accountants people like that who do you know save millions of pounds from um, the revenue and things like that um I, it, it, it gives rise to lots of policy issues which are quite difficult. I, th- I think there, there may be a, the, the time has come for the special role of solicitors um, in relation to other professions and society generally perhaps to be considered uh, mm. this whole question of whether the Solicitors Act is um, is still fit for purpose.
1: Yeah well I, I agree with this, this, is, this is Act itself I'm, I'm quite believing that the whole thing needs, needs to be looked at and reviewed um, mm.
0: So Before we move one. on to, to that topic, should we just have a quick yeah. look at the Supreme Court, the other Supreme Court case that you were going to talk about? Yeah, the the
1: the, the other one um, is 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 all about quox qualified one way cross shifting, personal injury claims, Delkin, um, and again, uh, permission here was given by the Court of Appeal, um, largely largely because there are now two inconsistencies, or there are there are two cases that. Um, in the Court of Appeal that uh, arrived at the same result, but the more recent one arrived at the result because of the earlier Court of Appeal decision in which it felt bound to apply, but did so expressly on the basis that the thought that the first decision, the earlier decision, was suspect. So it's given permission to appeal to the Supreme Court. And it's, again, it's really interesting. It's all about set off. So to summarise it simply, in a Quox case, uh, the claimant is not allowed to pay the defendant's costs, if an order is made in favour of the defendant, beyond uh, the level of damages uh, and interests that um, is ordered to be paid by the defendant. Um, and uh, that is 44.14. CPR 4414 cox rules now there are exceptions to it if you're fraudulent whatever and so on and you can lose your cox protection the issue in this case is whether or not the defendant is able to um, a defendant who's been ordered to receive costs from a claimant is able to set off that entitlement to costs against the costs entitlement of the claimant. So you can have a set off of costs as opposed to damages and interest. Um, and that's the issue. Can you have a set off of costs in a quox case, essentially? And the argument arises because of the wording of the rule refers to damages and interest, it doesn't refer to costs. And, then, and and 4413, I think it's the immediate rule above it. I'll just get the. Rule up. It's um yeah 44 <coughs> 4412, 44. which immediately precedes the qualified one-way cost shifting rules of 4413, expressly provides that um where where a party is entitled to where a party is entitled to costs is also allowed to pay costs, the court may set them off. And uh the argument is that Cox in rules 4413 and 4414 does not disapply 4412 the set-off rule and therefore you can have a set-off and it's a and in that sense it's no different to sort of the old legal aid regime um Lockley I think it was wasn't it Lockley that said you could set off cost orders um and um the court of Appeal. Uh, a case called Howe, H O W E, held that set off was available in a Quox case. The Court of Appeal in this case of um, Adelkin said that it felt bound by Howe, but expressly did so with real reservations about whether Howe was correct. And so the issue for the Supreme Court is whether or not you can have a set off of costs in Quox cases. What it means really for the clients of in claims claimants claiming damages for personal injury is that I think what it means is that the lawyers end up effectively funding the adverse costs thinking about it logically because you know the solicitors in those sorts of cases don't tend to charge clients they some do but if there's a set off of costs it means that the inter-parties cost recovery which the claimant lawyer would have received and taken and put in his pocket for the fees that they've earned won't be there for them to receive, so they'll either have to, because of the set off, so they'll either have to swallow the pill, or go after the client for those costs to pay for the damages.
0: And um, they had to get a very good letter um, of instru- an initial client care letter written with a special term, otherwise um, checkmylegalfees.com will be after them for claiming the money off the client. Yeah, we go back in we go back to informed
1: consent, Yeah. yeah. So it's a really interesting one. You know, I've got these two cases in the Supreme Court. It's uh, costs are still a, it's still, you know, a, a problematic, very interesting, perhaps odd, but you know. Well,
0: that, never, that was what was interesting to me actually, in the course of one, you know, discussion, which yeah. come across the court, the, the Supreme Court getting involved in two. And if you take the Gavin and case three uh, yeah. cases, um, within a relatively short space of time, all to do with costs, which was something they used to avoid, like the plague. Um, I can remember, and I'm sure you do, um, Callery and Gray were the first CFA case, where the Court of Appeal handed down a great big judgment, and uh, there was an appeal to the Supreme Court, and everyone thought they'll never take it because they don't know anything about costs. The, uh, the, it was the House of Lords, I think, in those days, said, uh, oh, yes, we'll take this, and, and gave permission. As soon as it got to them, they thought, oh God, this is all too complicated for us, we'll leave it to the Court of Appeal because it's too rapidly moving a field. Um, so it's quite, I, I wonder if it reflects a, um, a rather less condescending attitude towards the, the subject of costs, which you and I have always had you know, a great interest in, mainly I think because it is such a practically important issue for clients, um, but which certainly when I started um, was regarded as very infradig for a barrister to even know anything about, let alone uh, make submissions on.
1: Absolutely, I think you're right, Jeremy. I mean, I agree with that. That was the sense back in 1992 and thereafter in those days, it was was really often quite clear that the court didn't really want to engage in cost issues and thought it was uh, something beneath them. Um, You know, found barristers attending on costs assessments and costs appeals about, in those days, you know, um, scale one cost, scale two and general discussions being just fundamentally irritating and unnecessary. Um, that, there's no question in, in you know, the 30 odd years now where I've been around that that has completely changed. And, um, you know, you, you now have a court of appeal which is acutely aware of the importance of these cost cases. Um, you know the fact it the fact it's hearing so many cost cases is a uh, is testament to that. And as you say, you know you 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 wouldn't get your nose through the door on a on, 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 in the Supreme Court on cost issues, would you? But now you know you as you say we've got we've got these three cases. We had the the um, the Campbell judgment stuff. I know you were involved in that, and uh, you know section 58 and, and success fees, which was rather. Less surprised they got involved now, but this is nitty gritty, sort of uh, you know, procedural stuff that you would never think that they would uh, get involved in. But I think it does show the importance of it. And I, I, like you, have always stood my ground on uh, the role that lawyers, cost lawyers, barristers, this is whatever that may be, play in the uh, cost arena. Because if you're a client, actually. The costs mean more often than anything in in cases. Uh, All these disputes we see are disputes about costs because somebody has to pay them. We we also come in very handy at the end of the
0: case when uh, the loser um, is met with this large bill. And we can have a go at the bill and it gives them at least some sort of sense that they haven't lost everything (laughs) if if they're getting the, the, the other side's bill knocked back a bit reduced to yeah. nothing in the good old days of the of War. Yeah yeah absolutely.
1: Um, uh, but it's a testament, to the, a testament against the fact I mean you know you look around the country there are barristers chambers now with cost people in pretty much every one I think I mean, you know it's a uh, it's a very different business but uh Moving on to, uh,
0: to the, the sort of policy issues raised by about the Solicitors Act I know we can't talk very much about it because um everyone's got views and nothing i think is being proposed at the moment mm-hmm. in terms of reform to the solicitors act and maybe it won't come under this government um but uh y- what's your view in, in in general terms the solicitors act works moderately well or, or could do yeah it I, I,
1: I think it's time to, i think it needs to be fundamentally overhauled to be honest with you uh jeremy i i, I think uh, quite apart from terminology i mean one of andy's and Points about contentious, non contentious, and the, and the niceties of the definitions. It all seems to me to be largely, you know, um, far too over complicated and unnecessary. Um, the The rules about the 20% rule, I I, I just think that's, uh, that that needs to be fundamentally reviewed too. You get, you know, the, the fact that the solicitor, you know, is required to pay the cost of the assessment proceedings if, you know, 21% of the bill is reduced really sometimes can create very very unfair uh, outcomes. Um, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't just have you know cost principles along the usual lines uh, a winner pays a winner is uh, the loser pays you know subject to the court's discretion so that the court can actually make nuanced orders in respect of the costs uh, proceedings of the solicitor act assessment to reflect the success this may have had on certain issues I mean sometimes you have you know, days of arguing about retainers which you win. Um, but then the solicitors' fees are reduced by 22 percent and they they lose all the costs. I mean it's it's really unfair. And the and the fact that the Act contains a special circumstance provision to uh, you know to enable the, the court to put the 20% rule to one side takes anybody nowhere. Mm. It's very rarely exercised. Special circumstances the concept is is archaic and odd. Um, also, the, they, the special
0: rules on time limits as well for instituting yeah. taxation proceedings, uh, which are yeah, there are directly,
1: and it, it, I, I they're think traps. It's... Traps. There are traps, mm. and there are lots of traps. Trip-wise. I mean, for the client
0: as well. They, 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 I think it's two-way there. You you can be you know, yeah. deprived of a what should be a very good challenge to a solicitor's bill, which is excessive, because you you know you paid it or something and you had to, and then you yeah. suddenly find years gone by,
1: and, and that's it. I think I think it could be I think it could be absolutely redrafted uh, and brought up to date. Mm. Uh, this this provision we were looking at earlier on in the Belzter case, section 74, you know, it goes back goes back um, to the earlier to earlier versions, the Victorian versions of this act. And so, yeah. because the act and of laws consolidated, yeah. it took um, you know various provisions from other uh, statutory provisions and consolidated them, and as a result, you've got a mishmash of what is actually very old uh, uh, legislation dictated by policy, which no longer survives It
2: just needs updating. Well, even even the, there's less, the, the, the less fewer things are distinguished in the High Court and the County Court these days, for example, since the, right. since the introduction of the CPR. So why should you have one different set of rules in the mm. presumption in the County Court work compared to High Court is one. I mean, I I, I agree with you on on the basis that you know we always. Um, well, not so much policy, but the way we've the way it's evolved, we tend to be the ones who are handling or assisting in a solicitors' act assessment for one of our solicitor clients when a client goes, you know, when a client goes, goes, it all goes wrong, um, and there are so many more complicating factors than there are in an inter parties assessment. Um, you know, we haven't even, let's not go down that rabbit hole now, but, you know, the, the, the problems with ascertaining whether a, a, a bill is interim on account or interim statute, for example, you know, and, and everything, that, everything that revolves around that um, is, is difficult, you know, particularly in days nowadays, you know, when, um, you know, cash is king and people want to get paid as they go along and so on and so forth. So uh, they, and there's also obviously um, normally far more disclosure uh, I mean, there is a sort of form of disclosure regime within a Solicitor's Act assessment that there isn't within uh, w- within between the parties' assessments. It makes it hugely expensive, yeah. so, you know, to, to have that. And then, you know, th- there's, there's every reason, it seems to me, why a lot of law firms would want to take a commercial decision, maybe offer to knock 25% off or something like that, you know. Well, you know, they yeah. ought to be able to do that and protect That's themselves right. on costs, yeah. That's right. It's seems very difficult.
1: That. You know, you making part 36 offers and things it becomes a real problem when you if you, you know the 20 the 20 rule is a problem
2: it is. and
1: I, I just generally think it needs to be it needs to be looked at um maybe, Anything maybe i was going
0: to ask was this i mean coming back to my earlier point about there are many other people in the field now of what solicitors do um i've always found it very difficult dealing with say an accountant's bill that um, there's very little you can do to challenge it. They've got terms of business in contractual terms, it stands up, and it might strike you as utterly unreasonable, but there's actually no judge is going to to knock it back on the ground it's unreasonable if it meets the contractual terms. I'd, I've always rather thought that there's a case for, um, I suppose, a halfway house between the degree of detail and, and, crit- and critical examination that is applied to a solicitor's bill and the, the very little which is applied to other professionals doing in some cases almost identical work i don't know what
1: you'd think about that yeah i mean it, it is it, 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 i do think that the solicitor's remuneration is probably very uh, you know is over i mean it, um i'm sure that solicitors many solicitors would agree with that i mean it, you know as you say accountant so you you can report them to a to a professional body but you can't apply for an assessment um it is a bit odd um i mean in the modern day where uh, particularly if you've got sophisticated players the idea that the court really needs to have a a bespoke regime for the assessment of lawyers fees is a bit odd um um, granted they're officers of the court and so on but they're 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 heavily regulated through the sra Mm. um you know, query whether there should be this right to an assessment in this in in in, in the way that they get this right under the Act. Uh, you know, um, it, it could be equally you know, in the old days there used to be the remuneration certificates provision, didn't there, in non-contentious business where you could write to the law side and say this has been overcharged, and you can do that now under the Ombudsman. You can make complaints to the Ombudsman about overcharging after the limitations on what the Ombudsman. <coughs> may or may not do but um i do wonder whether this this <coughs> the the act is a relic of the past and it sort of needs to be properly reconsidered it may be on proper consideration and consultation everybody decides that it's mm. you know the principles underpinning it still should still stand but i suspect that isn't necessarily a foregone conclusion um
2: no I mean, I think you, you certainly have an ally in uh, in in that in Andrew Gordon saker the, the the current senior cost judge. I mean, he he uh, he's he's I know going back about a year or so ago, he's tried to get people interested in it. Has uh, he? I didn't know. And um, so it's you know it's interesting that you're getting soundings the same the same sort of noises not connected yet, but you know coming from you know two senior people in the profession um, and. Uh, uh, it's just a question of priorities and so on and so forth, isn't it, really? Um, Jeremy,
1: am I right in thinking, when 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 you were just towards the end of your your career at the did, did you not, I think you did, when I was involved as well, you tried to get an amendment to the Act, to the Citizens Act. Um, it was when Laspo was coming, coming.
0: Yeah, it was through, to I try it was yeah. to do something about DBAs, wasn't it, I think?
1: Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. And, we, and then, there, were right. no, there were no amendments to the Act at all, were there?
0: No um, and um, the, um, the ministry was completely uninterested uh, yeah. and actually rather um, they had very strong views formed internally with uh, I would have thought very little consultation and they were deaf to the um, representations made by outsiders who knew what they were talking about. I, I don't know if things have changed. Um, I no,
1: well, not, but, <laughs> I Practico don't. is very good at putting together papers to start people thinking about changes in law. I think Absolutely. It's, you never know, Andy, might be one for the future.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you. Absolutely not. We've <laughs> got the recording now. To, <laughs> delete, delete. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, well, it, tech is in Christmas come to mind, but exactly, uh, there yeah. you go.
2: I was also going to say, that, you know, and in the second three hours of this podcast, we'll discuss the shortcomings of the uh, of the government in terms of its uh, of its legal services and uh, so on and so forth. Right.
0: Well, you, yeah, you, you rightly um, reminded <laughs> us that time has passed. How about a touch of glamour and Johnny yes. Depp just to finish off? The sun. to
2: do with that one, Andy? I'll I'll introduce it. Um, We are, as as all readers, avid readers of the Daily Mail will know, uh, that we're we're waiting on a judgment in a high profile sort of throwback defamation case, uh, almost a sort of glamour defamation case um, in Johnny Depp v. The Sun, who uh, reported that he was a a wife beater. That's That's the essential sting. That and the, uh, the fact that his former wife Amber Heard may have been in fear of her life at certain times. So, you know, serious, uh, ser- serious matters, but being played out um, in a sort of almost a sort of a show trial, um, socially distanced trial, taking up five different courtrooms in the RCJ. So we're, we're judgment reserved. We're waiting for that to come. But there was for certainly cost nerds like us, there was an interesting um, there was an interesting curtain raiser on the eve of the trial that nick and i were involved in when the defense uh, sorry the claimant solicitors uh, shillings who took over the case uh something under about a year ago applied for um well we say they should have applied for a variation to the budget they actually applied for what they called an additional budget um which was uh, a, a, an exponentially large increase to the To the budget that had been agreed and approved between the parties a year ago um, and they tried to slip this in um, uh, before the trial started um, and it, it, it they didn 't succeed um, largely because it was sort of too much too late um, yeah. and also because the, uh, the the queen's bench master um obviously we would say that wouldn't we um, uh, 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 agreed with us that there is a, an unresolved policy issue that has to be resolved as to the extent to which any form of retrospective approval mm-hmm. can be given to work that was contained in a budget, even if, there are, even if there's been uh, material change in circumstances and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. So they were, they, they, were, they were sort of arguing uh, as if sharp and blank was sort of some form of settled law. Uh, we, we were saying it certainly isn't and it's wrong um, and, and citing um, criticisms that have been made in it in the cost of funding, supplements to the White Book and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, I think the interesting part of it is that um, there will at least now, we know, be uh, a revision to the rules and procedure coming in in October that at least sets out the stool in terms of how you should present yeah. aims for variations to budget which is something um i might say so we were saying they should have done um yeah i mean you produced
1: i remember you produced you produced a um a sort of table didn't you andy where we we set out um we had that black hole thing you remember where we yeah. we they had their additional budget um and then they they told us what the they told us what the, the last budget was, but what they didn't tell us was what they incurred between the date of the budget, original budget, and the point when they created this new additional budget. So, and they, and they, they said, well, that's what we incurred. So the court's got no jurisdiction over anyway. I mean, I thought it was completely nonsense, but um, that's, that's what they argued. And, um, but I noticed that the new form, looks very similar actually to what we were proposing they should produce in that case which
2: is absolutely no no sleight of hand there we have no we yeah. have no involvement in but it was common sense
1: year. wasn't it yeah, we yeah, sat yeah. down and said what does what's the court need to know it needs to know what the budget was what was allowed yeah. what yeah. the date yeah. was and then what's happened since then yeah before you then applied to the budget yeah. the new stuff
2: exactly uh, and how much extra to that might you need
1: how much extra might you need yeah
2: yeah exactly um, um
1: but i was it i thought that was i thought the judge for me that ca- that little hearing uh she said it was on the eve of the trial so it was all, all quite frantic but mm. i thought that the master approached that in exactly the right way um uh, I'm, not, I'm not just saying it because we succeeded but she said in terms cost budgeting requires me to case cost manage the case yeah and one thing i can do as the cost managing judge is not cost manage yeah i can decide that this that the best cost management decision to make is that the detailed assessment arena should be the place where these issues get looked at as a cost management decision otherwise really 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 quite important because you know judges say they're told that they can cost manage and therefore they must get on with the budgeting and resolve all the issues and so on, which clearly is the, yes. the starting point. But she was right to recognise that as a cost in the cost management exercise, you can actually say, this isn't the right case to cost manage now. Mm. And yeah. I'm going to allow, you know, you're going to have to go to an assessment. It's,
2: it's you know, to taking out the fact, you know, that just the principle is the important thing here. Um, wasn't at the time. It was the result, but the principle is the the important thing here. And and certainly, it's not it's not a dereliction of duty by the managing judge. It appears to me to say, now, hang on a minute. You know, sharp and blank or no sharp and blank. You know, we're really we're talking about seven figure sums here that have been incurred in over the last twelve months. You know, the the the, the people opposing the, the the party opposing the the, the, the variation. And naturally asking questions like, well, what is it all about then? You know, what, what, what is this extra work? Um, no position to assess that uh, 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 as a managing judge. Perfect. Yeah. That, that's what cost judges do. Yeah. That's the appropriate forum for it. Yeah. We're not just kicking the can down the road. It's not about, you know, it's not about being right. lazy or, 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 or thinking still that, you know, costs are a bit vulgar or so. Nothing to do with that
1: no no it was, it was the right thing to do i mean I, I do think when you've got these big cases uh you know million multi-million pound budgets i just like the idea that the judge can budget them in mm. you know an hour and a half or even two hours just
2: i mean the, the only other the, the only other takeaway i think is that um you know I, I seem to recall we were one of the reasons we were pushing at an open door um or rather, perhaps the 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 claimants were pushing it a closed one, um, was that they did take a long time to put that application together. Yeah, they, I mean there was a there was a, a, a it was accepted that there was a material change in circumstances uh, because of COVID as much as anything else. They had to there was a they relisted the trial and it was going to be in a totally different format. But that was three months previously. Yeah,
1: that, that's right. You're right to put that out. You've got to get if you want to get an amendment, you've got to get on with it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah precisely. Um Well, I think that's probably a, a good message that uh, we should end on because we've been going for about an hour now. Good. Um, I hope those of you who are watching have found this useful and instructive and not just a load of boring old people. Less um, than the old. Talking about <laughs> the old days.
1: <laughs> You're going to call us boring old fuckers. <laughs>
0: I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that. No, no, I was going to avoid that. word specifically. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway,
0: as, as I said at the outset, if you've got any comments or queries on any of the matters that have raised, um, by all means um, put them up when uh, this goes online and um, any queries will be responded to as soon as possible. Um, thank you very much for watching. Thank you. Thank you. Very enjoyable.
2: Bye. Bye.